This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 496 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Bill Anthes. Now, Bill is a... Now, Bill is a Green Beret veteran who now works in the wellness space and is the man behind Between the Ears. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into the military, the strength conditioning he saw there, and then transitioning out into the civilian population and looking at the person, not just the athlete, but anyone that he coaches as a complete human being. So addressing the emotional and mental element to weight loss, training, that kind of thing. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes, 500 incredible people. So all I ask in return is that you help share these amazing men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bill Anthes. Enjoy. So, Bill, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. James, thank you for having me, brother. It's uh, truly an honor. 
Now, I also have to slip in there. Thank you to Josh for connecting us a long time ago. It appears I dropped the ball in making that initial connection. And then thank you to Christian for connecting us a second time and lighting a fire under my ass to make me realize that I dropped the ball the first time. So to everyone, thank you so much collectively for making this uh, <laughs> this interview happen. Yep. So very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? So right now I am in a <clears throat> small little town called Far Hills, New Jersey. Hopefully my accent does not tip the hand, um, but we'll see. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like Frankie Edgar, I'll give you that. So... Um, and you got an amazing backdrop though, pretty much cooler than a lot of the backdrops I've seen. So is that actually your own facility that you're in? It is. Yeah. So the facility I'm in right now <clears throat> between the ears fitness, um, opened up a, it's about a thousand square feet. Um, we do generally semi-private, you know, very, very small groups or individual, um, sessions and opened up in 2020 brick and mortar, which is which was which is interesting That's for a sure. Great time to open a gym. <laughs> hey, if there was ever a time to open up a physical gym, it'd be in the middle of a pandemic. Right? <laughs> well, we'll get into that in a little bit. I heard you touch on it with another interview, but um, you know, it is an interesting story because myself, I am a little frustrated with what was allowed to be open and what was closed this last you know year and a half. But we can get down that down the road. Um, so. Starting at the very beginning chronologically then, tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. So I was born in New Jersey, uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey to be exact. I uh, grew up in Cranford, which is about 10 minutes outside New York, uh, Newark Airport. Um, was the middle of three boys. Father was a biochemist for sharing plow turned Merck um, until he, he retired um, but, you know, worked basically that singular job for probably 30 years. Um, mother stayed home to care for three boys, all three years separate, um, although worked during his doctorate program, um, you know, to obviously support support in that regard. Older brother was a Air Force Academy graduate. He wanted to be a pilot his whole life. Um, I was very vocal about it. I wanted to be a commando my whole life and was not vocal about it, which is uh, certainly part of the story. So was that a, um, a closet commando technically? Yeah, I mean, I think that could be the term. <laughs> yeah, like an embarrassed, you know, Julia Cameron has that. Um, she's, you know, she's written the artist's way and just a phenomenal in inspiration. But she calls it, you know, the uh, the shadow artist and people who might work in like banking or whatever services who don't really identify as an artist, but they have this desire and this urge. So for me, like I wanted to be a commando, uh, but felt kind of actually embarrassed um, and not, and like a little shameful to want to do that, uh, which kind of is part of my whole story, I suppose, on the personal side. Uh, but nonetheless, I found like a, an expressive outlet through soccer. And so I was a very high level soccer player all throughout my life, played in university, uh, had a chance to play after university in uh, Major League Soccer. Did not. I was like 90% in and was like, this is a 100% or nothing uh, situation for me. And uh, did not. So chose instead to, at the time, pursue money. And at 23, was making, you know, enough for a 23-year-old to think they were making a lot, which, relatively speaking, wasn't. Um, and realized real quick, you know, money's certainly not 
money is no way to only live. Um, so I quit that. I was working at a big public accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, quit that, enlisted into the military, went into tryout for special forces, uh, was successful in that regard. Uh, and then right before I left, I met this amazing blonde-haired, super passionate business owner who opened a CrossFit gym. Uh, this was like 2010, and uh, the rest is history. I did my one term of enlistment and then got out to be with family. And my younger brother, he, uh, super inspirational, um, got diagnosed with children's diabetes type 1, um, I want to say at around 11 or 12 years old, and saw him handle a complete shattering and loss of innocence with you know, grace and resiliency from, uh, from a really young age. And, um, you know, that was sort of just always an impressive thing for me to have, to, to bear witness to a, a younger sibling teach you about, about strength in a way that, you know, you'll never really know, but hopefully can someday kind of emulate. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the, what, two minute <laughs> start to finish. Well, that's, we're going to pull that apart. So it'll be a lot longer than two minutes. <laughs> going to your brother first. I want to go also about the, the uh, closet commando in a moment, but, um, what, what, you know, what were you witnessing? What were the struggles that he was enduring with that particular disease? Well, he became <clears throat> his life became dependent upon an external chemical an insulin so you know type 1 pancreas stops producing insulin so your body does not normally regulate uh, it cannot naturally and automatically regulate blood glucose levels so you know went from getting you know your typical kind of like one shot a year kind of situation to injecting himself four or five, six, seven times a day. Um, at the time they were, you know, syringes, hypodermic syringes. Uh, this was what they was, well, this was so 88. So this was probably around 2000. Um, so, you know, the, the diabetic market has since expanded, but you know, would see him, uh, testing his blood sugar, pricking himself, having to shoot himself with insulin, inject insulin, um, not being able to eat certain things like as a kid, you know, as a 12 year old, like, you know, candy equals sugar. Um, and, and that's going to have, you know, significant consequences had also seen him, uh, ride the highs and the lows of, of erratic blood sugar. Um, you know, kind of one, one particular day he, um, this was years later, but I, um, was studying actually for the CPA exam the summer I graduated college and heard him like laughing, like hysterically laughing in the, in the other room. And at first I was like, Oh, that's kind of funny. It kept going on and going on and going on. And it got to the point where I was like, like enough, I'm trying to study, like nothing you're watching is that funny. I didn't know he was completely out of it, you know, and he was, his, his blood sugar was, you know, basically zero. <laughs> um, and he then was having like a seizure, uh, fell off the couch, crushed his head on a corner of a coffee table and I heard this bang and I ran in and saw him face down having a seizure, you know, just eyes back, tongue, jaw locked. And I was like, Jesus. So, you know, he, he had to deal with that reality being 45 minutes away every day of his life from 12. And so it was truly a, a you know, he would never say it, but I'll say it for him. Like his innocence was stolen through that disease, and, but how he handled it continues to be was and continues to be you know full of grace and strength and um you know just a testament to to who he is 
Yeah. Well, it's such a dichotomy as well because you have childhood diseases, whether it's, you know, leukemia, whether it's type 1 diabetes. And to me, that's where the research, the funding all needs to be directed. But sadly, through our lifestyle, I think we've invoked type 2 diabetes, you know, a lot of the, the more adult cancers. And I wish the, the focus was on prevention for the adult stuff. So therefore, we could do true research to the pediatric stuff. It, it, it does seem like the priorities are not in order, you know. And uh, I think it's actually a shame that diabetes type 1 and 2 are actually called the same thing. Um, you, you know, I, I just, I honestly, and, and I understand that some, I understand there's a sensitivity to, you know, kind of pathologizing individuals with diseases and I get it. And, you know, especially in, in our current climate right now, there's quite a bit of folks who you know, feel like they're being attacked for their health and the choices. And, and it's, it is a sensitive subject, um, but I do think that you know diabetes type one, type two, why they share the same name, uh, it, it boggles my mind. Just having up close personal experience with the disease. Both of my brothers actually are type one. Um, yeah, that's why my brother, my older brother, had to actually medically retire from the Air Force because he came down with type one diabetes at thirty. Just crazy. Yeah. Now you touched as well on the shame of wanting to be. A commando. So, talk talk to me about that kind of uh, psychology. My older brother was already in, <clears throat> or had expressed significant interest uh, of going into the air force, and then uh, and being a pilot. And um, you know, it was always something that I felt like, well, one son, one of three, is enough um, for parents to bear. So I felt a responsibility and I felt, uh, frankly, like probably it's, uh, and nobody asked me to have this, but to me it was not quite a fair <laughs> uh, responsibility to tend for your caretakers and what their perhaps psychological needs may or may not have been. For whatever reason, I took that on. Um, and so I felt like it was fine to sort of use as inspiration for training hard in soccer, but that was sort of where it ended. And, and that's truly what it was. Like I thought if I could, if I could be a fraction of what these commandos are doing or what I thought they were doing, you know, before social media, obviously, um, I'd be pretty okay on the field and, and would probably be a little bit better than my opponents and have some success there. And it did work, but it, but, but for me, it just didn't, it didn't, um, it, it, it kept going. It wasn't just about, uh, <clears throat> it wasn't just about, you know, being better at ball games. 9-11 certainly came, uh, you know, being 10 miles outside of the city and just kind of having a front row seat to that. Um, only, only through gasoline on that fire. And, uh, but I still felt that I couldn't, I wasn't, it wasn't, I was not allowed to sort of do that, that it wasn't, it would be too much, you know, if, God forbid something happened to you know, two sons. What would that do to our family? And um, I kept that. I just I just buried that down and to, until it got to a point where it was like my at twenty five. It's just either try this, do this, go follow your you know personal legend. I'm a big fan of the Alchemist, the book. So you know, kind of follow your personal legend or truly bury it and never revisit it again. And I wasn't prepared to 
I wasn't prepared to fail because I didn't try. That's not okay with me. Now, I had a, a, a different but similar kind of circumstance where as a kid, I was told I was colorblind and I could never be a firefighter. And that was actually, I wanted to be a doctor or a firefighter. Ironically, I ended up as a firefighter paramedic. So great outcome. But for the longest time, when I believed the person in the white coat that told me that, I really fumbled around life and I was really unhappy because I couldn't find what I was supposed to do. And ultimately what I was supposed to do is exactly what I knew as a child. It just, it took me having a realization and challenging the medical system to actually get on. It turns out I wasn't colorblind. I was just deficient. Like a lot of people are. Um, what, what was your, your feeling working in that corporate saying, did you find yourself kind of unfulfilled and unhappy at all? 100%. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I, the first time I went to a recruiter, I was actually, it, this was probably, let's see, I got, it was right around 2007 probably. And it was supposed to go into the New York City for, um, you know, one of these big kind of meetings with the whole region kind of deal in the, in the corporate office and whatnot. And I was like, right, this is just, I'm, I would literally rather do anything else in the world than do this thing. Um, you know, being an athlete, a high performing athlete my whole life, being part of something, it just didn't add up. It felt like I was putting on someone else's skin every day and it was not being me. And I blew that meeting off and went to a recruiter kind of in like a, I'm sure he recognized like this just desperation, but hesitation as well. And I told him what I wanted to do and he was like, okay, like, yeah, with your, like little briefcase thing and your fancy clothes and sure, like we'll be here, you know? And, uh, it wasn't exactly like, yeah, come on in, you know, which I was sort of ex- like a little actually hesitant for. Cause like the whole, you hear the horror stories of the recruiters and this and that. And next thing you know, you're selling your kidney or whatever. It might be. <laughs> um, but it was kind of like bullshit. Like he kind of called my bluff and I'm not, I, I don't regret that at all um i think it was in in the in the sort of tapestry of life it's a it's an important thread but it it was definitely something that i think back to is and and you know do with coaching others and and helping with others too of you know really when we say we want something like what what is our preparation and, and willingness to actually pursue it we can say we want to do things but what is our willingness to to action that um and so that was 2007, and I finally wound up enlisting and, or leaving in 2010. So it took a couple of years after that. But that was that corporate life uh, was certainly not was not for me. Now you mentioned about playing soccer. You, I mean, football for all the people that aren't from America. Um, <laughs> but uh, you played at a very very high level to the point where you're even Hall of Famer. So. When you look back now, um, which, which mental and physical attributes set you up for that high level of success? You know, it was not my skill. Um, it, it, it wasn't because I had an, a phenomenal first touch. And, you know, I could strike a ball pretty aggressively and I was fast and strong and, you know, worked hard. But growing up, um, I was the smallest kid on the field all the time. I didn't, I'm, I'm about 6'2, 200 pounds right now. I didn't um, mature until I was about a junior in high school. So I was like a late bloomer kind of deal. So, but, but growing up, I was always the little peanut out there. And so within that, I had to have a certain degree of you know, mental fortitude 
and courage and tenacity to compete against kids who, you know, at 12, some of them are shaving like for a year already. <laughs> and like, what do you like? I was like 83 pounds, you know? Um, and so I would say it was, it was certainly a, a tenacity and, and a mental just commitment um, that contributed to developing skill sets, to training in the off season, to you know, constantly seeking to be better. Um, which again, it, it, it kind of has its pros and cons for sure. Athletically, it 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 helped, but when you're always convincing yourself you're not enough, like careful that that cup might spill over and, and get some other areas uh and and influence some other areas and that certainly was the case in, in my situation and you know i think with the olympics and small biles currently right now with all this stuff like there's a lot of that pressure and that toxicity that um helps you make a response to something as an athlete however if gone unchecked can also infiltrate other areas of your being and um you're gonna have to you're gonna have to pay that price at some point. Yeah, no, well, that whole Simone Biles issue, I, to me, the the comments have basically have dehumanized her, and you know she's become this gymnastic robot who, by the way, has got this country, you know, a mound of gold medals already. Um, but yeah, I mean, we all have bad days. She just happened to have. You know, that you said that, that kind of perfect maelstrom in her mind at this particular event. And it's post-COVID where a lot of these people were isolated. So I don't find it surprising at all. And, you know, sadly, the same way as the racism from the very minority in the UK after the England game that I saw reported, the real shame is they reported that shit at all. You know, most of the people were so damn proud of that, of that team. And if you look at it, I'm sure most people have nothing but respect for Simone. And it's a shame that it happened with that timing. But I'm sure she's fucking heartbroken too, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think sometimes people forget that these are just human beings. And, you know, they, 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 they remove all compassion and kindness from their response to it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I saw, um, I saw a couple of people come to her like, you know, Michael Phelps is, is kind of like, I would say like the godfather of the new, um, zeitgeist of high level athletics and mental health coming together. Um, and, and kudos to him for, for leading that, uh, charge. But, you know, to think that if a pilot, if a firefighter, if a, if a special operations individual is a soldier, whomever who is in a position where, uh, significant, we'll just say life or death or, you know, big costs, you know, big risk, big reward was on the line. If that individual raised their hand and said, Hey, I am fully aware of the situation that I am in right now. I don't think I can perform. I don't know about you, but if I heard a pilot say that, like just on a commercial flight and be like, and, and they got somebody else. Yeah. The two hour delay would kind of be a pain in the ass. But I'd be like, well, thanks for not flying the plane if you felt like you weren't able to do it. Likewise, we're kidding up and we're going out. And someone's like, look, like, I love you guys this much that I'm this is gonna kill me. I'm gonna have to I'm I have to I have to step off this one. They can't no worries. What do, what do we gotta do? Insulate, not isolate. And as a society, as a as a group, as a whatever we're calling all of this, uh, to insulate somebody for making that decision, I feel like is the is the wholesome 
compassionate driven approach versus isolating or then, you know, turning into, Oh, she's being whatever, you know, the, the, the kind of social cynicism. Um, and it, it's, it's sadness dis- and it is disheartening, but I, I, I have hope that that will change with people having the conversation and, and really looking at her and saying like, you know, playing with a broken leg is, is, is easy compared to not playing with perhaps a, you know, an injured brain. Yeah. Well, and I think I heard you touch on this, uh, in the other conversation I heard, but the weight of gold, that documentary that Michael Phelps and the other athletes made, um, I mean, it's a great insight, the lack of support that a lot of these athletes get. I just saw one of the uh, Special Olympians, potential Special Olympians, um, wasn't able to go to Tokyo because they basically told her you got to make your way on your own. I don't know if it was a COVID restriction or what, but she was blind and deaf. So you're asking a blind, deaf Paralympian to get themselves from the US to Japan mid-COVID. I mean, you know, so... Un- we may think that these men and women, we see them on our box of Wheaties, that they're, you know, millionaires and all this stuff. But no, I mean, the pressure on on these athletes sometimes with very, very little financial support is immense. And I think anyone who doesn't understand that should watch that documentary. I, th- I found it incredibly enlightening. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Now, with your background with the high level of soccer, yet your nine to five being behind a desk, what was that journey like? regular army boot camp into special operations selection for you? So I went in under, um, the army has a enlistment contract called the 18 X-ray, which is essentially you want to be a green beret. Okay. Um, we'll guarantee you a tryout up. And if you, you know, kind of, I can say in air quotes, pass like basic training, show up, make sure your heart doesn't stop and you're good. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, you go, um, uh, Fort Benning for basic training, infantry training. Uh, then you go to airborne school, static line airborne school. Uh, then you get on a bus, go up to Fort Bragg. This was when I went through. I think that the pipeline has since changed, but when I went through, then it was this thing called SOPSI, which was special operations preparation course, which was, you know, basically just getting, you know, getting the shit kicked out of you for, for a few months. They teach you what you need to know as well. But, um, you know, all of those are sort of weeding out, um, possibilities with escalating intensity basic training not really that big of a deal airborne school same thing not big of a deal sopsies where it starts to sort of you know you get to kind of see some people separate some people really question like do i really want this um and so then six months in i found myself in formation in uh camp mccall with a bunch of bunch of uh Anything from, you know, combat proven special operators from 75th Ranger Regiment uh, to, you know, lower enlisted to officers to, um, you know, everything in between NCOs. And so at six months, you're in selection, standing in formation um, with no rank and just a number. And so then it's, it's up to you to perform and was thankful to, to, to not only, you know, physically perform and everything like that, but also have the wherewithal to learn from dudes who had forgotten more about what it meant to be in the army than I had learned up to that point. And so I, uh, I, I tried to keep my mouth shut, my ears open, uh, to, and, and that was a pretty successful strategy. Now, so many people do ring the bell. The attrition rate of, you know, most special operations or special forces selections, uh, you know, is immense. What allowed you to carry on when other people stopped? 
you know, I've thought about that and I wish I had like a better, I wish I had an answer you could package and sell. <laughs> Put on the highlight reel. <laughs> but like the real, the reality of it was, uh, I believed in, in who I was that this is, this is where I was supposed to be. And, um, you know, it was something that it, it, it's all the, all the inspiration and all of the reasons and all of that stuff kind of gets out the window. It gets, it was a very, my fuel was emotional and, and, and emotional, not like hallmark emotional, but emotional at like the visceral level of who I, who I believed I am and who I was trying to become. And, um, <clears throat> whenever adversity came, it was an invitation to revisit that and, and make it, a, make it about identity. And, Adversity certainly did come, <laughs> and there was plenty of days. And you know, you, you pass selection, uh, and that's just the beginning. Uh, especially as this, you know, eighteen X-ray person with no experience. After that, it, it, there's selection is certainly not the hardest course or phase that you go through. I mean, there was challenging moments, but um, you know, it, it wasn't. It wasn't like if you pass that, then you know everything else was going to be a cakewalk. Um, for some it might have been, but so, so it really was about a, a more emotional, visceral driver of, uh, of kind of like, I call it like the who, like your who. And, and that was what every moment of suffering and adversity was an invitation for you to express that. And you could do that and, and meet that with vigor or, you know, kind of look at the circumstances and say, I'm not enough or I'm not, you know, oh, I'm tired. It's like, of course you're tired. Like, that's the point of this. <laughs> you know, of course you're uncomfortable. Like if you weren't, they'd be doing their job wrong and they're not folks who do their job wrong. So, um, yeah, that's what I would say was kind of the fuel source in those moments. Now with you touching on almost like a, an imposter syndrome when you were younger and then, you know, the, the hiding your, your desire and then grinding through those days in the corporate world. What was it like for you when you finally were wearing the uniform that you dreamed of since you were a kid? It felt right. You know, it, it felt right. Um, it was one of those things I, I <clears throat> it wasn't always like a, it wasn't always a 10 out of 10 day. There was plenty of like three out of 10 days. There was plenty of one out of 10 days. But generally speaking, it felt right. It felt like what I was doing <clears throat> and, and, and how I was kind of pursuing this path was, was what I was supposed to do. Um, back when I was a kid, like, and, and even up until, you know, when I was enlisting, I didn't factor for meeting the love of my life and the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with as being the hardest part of it. I always thought it, would, it was going to be the push-ups. It was going to be the running. It was going to be the, the rope climbs and, you know, the rucking and moving stuff and, and all of that. Um, I didn't realize it was going to be just for me. And this is my own personal experience. Living in two worlds that can never coexist was gutting. Uh, and I, and, and, I learned a ton about that. It challenged me far more than any physical test could, than any you know, psychological puzzle could. That that challenged me uh, far more, and and I'm, I'm thankful for that because what I think it actually did was it accelerated a journey to discovering a little bit more about this stuff, like at the basic human level of all common to all. What do we have going on here? And when we think about connection and how how important that is. Um, you know, that, that experience in the military and, and throughout my time in special forces and, and not having 
you know, arguably one of the, the most powerful points of connection, uh, and really driven in love, like to not have that <clears throat> be able to exist was, that was tough man, for sure. Yeah. I can imagine. I just had uh, Jamie Cochran on, who's the kind of the backbone of echelon front Jocko and, and Leif's company. And right when she met, um, her husband was right when he got into buzz. So then he was off, you know, he was at home and they were preparing for each week's training. And then, you know, he went off and did all his, uh, advanced training and then deployed. So, you know, we always forget about the military family. Now, how did your yeah, girlfriend at the time deal with, you know, this kind of whirlwind romance and then you're flying around the world protecting this country? You know, there was definitely some, <clears throat> there were some challenges about it as far as what that meant for other people in her life that <clears throat> did not, that, that were, that was not handled quite well, um, and added a certain degree of adversity to it. Um, but it was one of the things with it was like, it, 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 it showed the value uh, and the true strength that rests in belief. We both had this belief in the other and in self of what each other was doing. And with that, it was not like reliance. It was not, you know, she's incredibly strong, independent. Uh, you know, she opened up a, a small business uh, at the time. No one ever heard of CrossFit. She actually had a financial person. This 2008, she opened up a CrossFit gym. And this consulted with a financial person and they were like, yeah, don't do this. This is not a good idea. She's like, yeah, I'm going to do it, you know, and had two like toddlers at the time, you know, and had no support from her then husband, um, you know, and just and, and, and persevered. And uh, it was amazing. And so, you know, from I always say like she's stronger than me, like my job was easy, you know, her having to live real life uh, the military in many ways is not at that time for those couple of years in training, like it's not really real life for me. It was, I was living in the barracks basically, you know, just doing what I had to do. Um, you know, but, but for her, it was, it was incredibly challenging because of again, that absence and you just kind of, uh, the first year I think I was unable to literally communicate with her for about nine months out of that. And so, you know, and yeah, what we got back to writing and, um, you know, writing letters and, just getting to know each other because really we were getting to know each other. We were friends before I left and then, you know, developed like a, a stronger relationship. Um, but we just got to know each other through the old school way, which was, which was really, which was really pretty cool. Very cool. Now, where did you find yourself deployed first? So I was in the, I was in the Middle East uh, with the interagency task force for, um, or some stuff going on. <laughs> I don't need specifics. I understand, you know, who I'm talking to. Um, th there's two questions that I love to ask anyone who's deployed, and you know, they're, they're kind of like opposing. And I'll preface it this is the way I always do. Here, in, yeah, not so much even in the UK, but definitely here in the US. You know, we get a very polarized view of war. You know, and there's the the two extremes seem to be the the images that we get, either kill them all, let God sort them out, or they're all a bunch of baby killers. With everyone that's come on the show, you know, it's a boots on the ground, you know, actual perspective of what our men and women saw. So regardless of the politics that sent you wherever you found yourself, was there a moment wherever you were deployed the first time where you saw firsthand atrocities or, you know, injustices that you know usually are towards the people within that country that 
further justified that the mission that you were on was true as far as, you know, stopping these, these horrendous acts from happening in this country? I didn't see atrocities occurring firsthand before my eyes the way some others who deployed to other areas did. What I saw was a degree of sadness and a complete abandonment of hope when when people give up on people. And, you know, there was the you know, countries... Sure, these people were being targeted. Nobody cared. Like, nobody cared for them. People left fighting in, you know, military age, generally males, but, you know, not, it's certainly not exclusive to males. There was no one who was going to fight for these people. And that's kind of what I saw. So I didn't see necessarily the kinetic uh, trauma that occurs when, you know, in different areas, you know, um, you know, in Iraq and Afghanistan, for sure, it was the fallout of that, and it was something I think a little bit not deeper in that sense, but it was these people had nothing. And one 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 scene that kind of is burned into my mind and heart, I suppose, is you know when grown men who are hardened were who were going into certain death begging you to go with them pleading with you crying breaking down and you just have to say get the fuck on that plane and go. meanwhile inside you're like jesus christ this is <laughs> sorry am i allowed to oh yeah no you are <laughs> uh, you know and, and and it was like you know what was awaiting um and so that was that was pretty rough and you know telling this like you like get on there and just and then what do you do you know um so 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 that was my experience was not I didn't have the Iraq Afghanistan experience and that actually that messed with me for a while um so 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 my experience was certainly different um I would say it was certainly justified like I I believed in I believed in the it's tough to completely remove the politics from it because ultimately that's what that's what sends us or keeps us um but from what I saw, it was I was working with we were working with a certain uh, you know kind of three letter agency, and one of the individuals said, "Look, this is like a lot like when you're watching how sausage is made. You never want to eat a hot dog again." And I was like, "Ooh, that's there's a lot of truth to that." And so you know that's that's where when you, when we really do break apart war. Gone are the days of the, you know, axis of power and or the axis of evil and the allied fronts. And, you know, it, it is hell. It is messy. And um, at the end of it, you know, the, 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 the toll and the cost on human beings is something that everyone needs to think works or feel if they can long and hard before we send our sons and daughters to do. Well to do work that may overextend or overstay its its welcome and and why that gets driven is perhaps a different conversation but that was kind of my my take on it 
Yeah, well, I appreciate it. And this is why it's so important that we listen to, to your voices, the men and women that are out there. You know, and I love uh, Sebastian Junger talks about the Veterans Town Hall where, you know, where he is they, for four hours every Veterans Day rather than just doing a parade. They give a microphone to veterans. Anyone wants to tell their story, you know, good, bad, indifferent, they, they get to, to tell it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's so powerful. I got Dr. Edith Eager coming on the show, um, in a couple of weeks and she's an Auschwitz survivor and she had to actually, um, she was forced to dance for, oh my goodness, I forget which Nazi shitbag it was, but one of them anyway, one of the, the most known ones. Um, you know, and there's, so there's a time, for war and even though politics is behind that in the first place but at the same time i think it's so important that we as a nation make sure that whoever we elect maybe we create a system that actually elects good leaders <laughs> that'd be a good start um left and right i'm talking about but that there's an understanding of what you're asking these children these 18 year olds to go out and do you know, and, and if it's unavoidable, then I get it and I'll pick up a damn gun myself. But, you know, I grew up with the Falklands War when I was little. And that to me seems like a, an incident that, I mean, unless I'm not understanding it fully, it seems like diplomacy could have probably brought that to an end without, you know, a huge loss of life. So, so yeah, I think it's, it's a really powerful perspective that, that we hear, you know, again, voices like yours, people that we asked to do it, that went out there, um, and then carry it for the rest of their lives as well. Yeah. And, you know, and, and for sure, my voice is is part of that. It's the Gold Star family. So in the U.S., it's, we have you know Gold Star families. Those are <clears throat> individuals who have lost a family member to uh, to war, to military conflict or to, within the military. I don't know if training. I, I believe, yeah, training, training counts for that. So it's a family member who has lost a, a, a military uh, you know, service member. One of my best friends, one of my my first team sergeant, my first senior actually, um, amazing dude. He is a gold star family. Uh, his brother, Justin, was killed in Iraq in two thousand and eight. Uh, they were both Green Berets. You can hear, I can speak for sure, but the gold, the voices of the gold stars, need to be spoken. Because they are the ones who have this this burden, this legacy burden, really, and have to deal with that. You know, for me, it, you know, it was it, it, it you lose, you know, you you know what's going, you 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 know the hazards of your chosen profession, as like kind of the Ranger Creed sort of goes. The husbands and wives and sons and daughters and moms and dads and stuff they weren't in <laughs> and so they were in but but now they have to carry your law the, their loved ones loss and for fuck's sake if we're not listening to them we are we are not we are failing as a just as a society and um you know that one of the worst things i think we can do and, and certainly this is something that we're going to I think unfortunately have a lot of people really, really struggle with is, you know, especially now with Afghanistan being done, whatever is happening with Iraq kind of end of combat mission, but like round what number of that is it? But like we were there for 20 years and when you start asking like, what did we do? What is, 
what was the point? Um, you know, was this something that was 18 years long done? Um, you know, that starts to kind of, that starts to have some cracks in the foundation. And when that starts to happen, we like immediate repair and, 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 and service needs to, needs to go there. Cause there's a deep healing that the individuals need to have, as well as I, I, I personally believe society needs to have with these warrior cultures. Um, and, and, and I think the gold star families are the voices of the true cost of war. Absolutely. Yeah, I had uh, Debbie Lee on the show who uh, just very recently, who's Mark Lee's mother, and he's the first SEAL killed in Iraq. Um, you know, and again, getting that perspective, of course, she's proud. And of course, she, she knows the good that they did. But yeah, I mean, there's that other side. And I feel the same with the fire service. That's why I started this podcast, because I buried six firefighters in a space of a couple of years. And each firefighter that died, you know, yes, traditionally, there's a possibility we can die in a fire, but a lot of them, it was, you know, heart disease and uh, overdose and suicide and, you know, all these other things that are killing them from the job, the collective stresses, the shift work, the, you know, all these things. And, and that's it is, you know, we go to the funeral, we watch the folded flag being given, and then that's it. We go back to station and move on. Well, that family has that flag sitting in their living room every day. And that void is there every single day. So we owe it to you know, the, the widows and grieving families in law enforcement and fire and the military and you know, all these professions. If, if there's any way of preventing these deaths and this heartbreak, then that should be the absolute pinnacle of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I would agree. And looking at when we leave, uh, whether whatever our service is, <clears throat> and what I do now really is uh, helping people to find that inner peace. Um, because without it, like that inner turmoil and conflict, which when we're in actually kind of is a great fuel source. But once you are out, like the last time you put a uniform on or when you're gone now or when you're out or when you're moving on, um, you need to shift that to like more inner peace and more, more healing. And, um, you know, that can kind of sound like a little like woo woo and, and crunchy and, and whatever new world, new age or whatever, but it's, 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 it's not, <laughs> it, it really isn't. And looking at trauma, looking at, you know, physical, mental and emotional fitness and health and wellness and how we can build that up within people who for many weren't having these conversations. You can't have these kinds of conversations at certain high, high stress, high kinetic, high op tempo, like there's a job to be done. Like, and so, but you have to pay that, you know, you have to, you got to pay that toll at a certain point. And, um, you know, everybody's at a different point on their journey, but you really do have to, I personally think uh, shift from perhaps that inner conflict that might drive things that are, you know, frankly celebrated and revered and put on a pedestal in, in this society uh, and, and, and look more towards <clears throat> uh, cultivating inner strength and inner peace. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to transitioning because that's a very important point. But just before we do the other side of the coin of the question I asked before, during your deployment over there, were there any moments of compassion and kindness that you witnessed amongst you know this this theater of war that you were put in oh yeah 
Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, having <laughs> this is kind of maybe a lighthearted thing, but one of uh, one of one of the one of the fellas that I was I was working with uh, was obsessed with Miami. Obsessed with Mr. Bill. Tell me about the women in Miami. Tell me about the bars. <laughs> women in bars man this like one plus one like this doesn't are you sure you're allowed to be talking about this (laughs) um but there were there were those things you know one of the uh, another one was um you have different people from all different walks of life and some where depending upon where where in the country some people are from they may or may not look too kindly upon other people from other areas of the country and different different sects and 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 whatnot but you know what united everybody was a soccer ball and on a dirt pitch, you know, with rocks and everything in there, you know, our team went down to, to play. So, and they play every night and uh, we went down there to, you know, you build rapport, you do that whole thing. And it was amazing um, because it was like, look, it, for whatever it is, like, yep, you have your issues with people, you have your whatever's, uh, but you get this round ball, this goal and you, you're going this way and you're going that way. And uh, it, it was a pretty cool thing where other things, the world temporarily could be suspended during the, during the game. And that was, uh, that was a pretty special, that was a pretty special night. That was a pretty special moment. And then of course, everything in between with, you know, some of the daily stuff of, you know, just, just observing and witnessing people. And, and I, and there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of different nationalities and, and, and types of people participating in this in this task force so it was um it was kind of cool to see how that how that did show up in each different unique way across across a pretty pretty diverse group so it's so cool to hear I and mean, obviously people's minds probably go to the ceasefire in world war one you know with the famous famous football game between the british and the germans but uh i also had a australian sas guy harry moffitt on and he took a cricket bat to all those deployments and that was the unifying thing because you know again out there especially places like pakistan i mean you know cricket is huge there so um it's crazy when you said about the politics because you have these few people who have these differences and they send large amounts of people to go fight for them and then you introduce a cricket bat or a football and all of a sudden they're just football players on a pitch you know, so I love hearing those stories. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing thing what what that kind of truly common ground can do. And again, I think it all comes back to connection. And and as human beings, we want to feel connected with others. And a lot of shit gets in the way of that and uh, intentionally disconnects us. But if we can connect to self and then connect to others, uh, you know, perhaps we can kind of. It might sound a little bit romantic, but have a little bit more harmony and and move forward collectively versus you know kind of combatively 100 percent. well so many people on the show transition out you know was was a struggle for them and i think as you especially in your story you envisioned yourself as a commando since you were a kid you became you know basically a commando and it's very hard for us not to identify as the firefighter the police officer and that become our entire identity. And then when we transition out, we're taken from our tribe. You know, it's, it's a very jarring experience for some people. What was that like for you? Uh, it, it was agonizing. Um, and, and I didn't, I didn't really give it, I don't know how I didn't expect it to be anything else. I mean, you don't know what you don't know. So of course there's that. 
um, I thought I had a good buffer. Honestly, I went in at 25. I had a college degree. I had a corporate job. I knew <laughs> the military is not all of, you know, if you think of a pizza, like I know I'm not a military pizza. Like I know <laughs> rationally there's a couple slices that are whatever college, a couple slices that are this, a couple slices that are that. So I thought I kind of had a hedge against that where you kind of, I've, I've, I've you know, heard the stories of, oh, so-and-so got out and then didn't know what they were doing. I was like, nah, I'm good. You know, and I kind of ignored that, uh, which was a bit, which was, which was foolish. But when I, when I did get out, um, there was, there was unresolved issues that I, I, I left the military to be with family. It was a very binary decision for me. Be with family or do this thing. The two could not coexist. What I wanted to do and the trajectory that I wanted to go down and it was headed towards uh, really wasn't that of also being in like my wife and two stepchildren and the businesses and or her business rather was up here in New Jersey. That had, that had established roots. I was the satellite. And I didn't want to be the satellite anymore, and, and, and I didn't want to be the man in the box to, 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 to my stepchildren. I wanted to know them. They were young, and I'd missed pretty much their entire life up to that point. And I didn't want to have that be the, 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 the way forward. And so it, it, it was really tough. I, went, I was about six months out and was going to go back in. A uh, buddy called me up and was like, hey, we're going to Afghanistan. Need a, need a good dude that I know that is, you know capable and whatnot i'm like yep i'm in because this whole like <laughs> not being in thing isn't going to work and uh almost did that when we uh, almost worked for you know one of these other government agencies and it got to the point where my wife kind of called my bluff and was like look if you can't move on now are you really ever going to be able to and uh the end i was lying to myself and them you know oh well you know i'll, I'll this is like a 30 or a 60 day trip. It's great. I'll be back. I'll be there. I'll be back. The national guard situation. I'll still get to be green beret, but I'll only kind of do it part time. And it was, it was, you know, she saw through the smoke screen. Um, and so that then that, that kind of was the, uh, the beginning of, I need to find my footing and, and, and it felt very, very unstable. And there was things within me that I had to look at and, and uh, I just didn't, you know. And so uh, that, that began a, a journey of, 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 yeah, of healing and trying to find my way. And uh, I, I would say I'm feeling like now um, I'm certainly I'm miles ahead of where I, where I was um, as far as you know, where, what, I'm, what I would like to do moving forward. You know, you feel like you kind of feel like you know who you are, but how do you then express that and, and, and work for something of purpose and meaning? Um, but in between that, you know, then in the past year, maybe, uh, was certainly, was certainly tough. And then the, and the struggle continues cause we are all human. And, you know, one of the things so I have a you know coaching company and I'm, you know, going this time next year will be a you know, licensed therapist. And, um, that doesn't mean that you've, you've, you've mastered it, you know, and you've, you've hit a hundred percent. Um, and so some of my, some of my passion for working with mental health and combining physical fitness with that stems from the necessity of my own healing needs and, um, you know, the modalities and stuff that I, that I sought weren't, weren't there. 
And so I don't know, maybe it's ignorance or maybe it's the green beret in me that says, well, if the, if, if the problem, if you can't find the problem or if you can't find the, find the solution, then make the solution. Um, you know, and that's kind of been, I suppose that's been the, the, the big mission since, but yeah, it was, it was rough. Definitely. Yeah. It's an interesting perspective. Um, so you obviously found yourself in the strength and conditioning or your overall, you know, wellness space. Walk me through your journey through CrossFit, through, I know you were in the strong fit, um, you know, realm for a while too. So, because I know you, you had a kind of epiphany about the compartmentalization of strength, fitness, you know, mental resilience, all these things. So what was that journey through that space like for you? And then when did you start? realizing that we were compartmentalizing a lot of these these areas of wellness yeah i mean so i found crossfit in uh my brother actually brought it back from a deployment um was like hey i you know looked at him like jesus you're like jacked what happened you know this is probably 2007 2008 time frame and he's like oh yeah i did this thing crossfit of course like not drinking for four months also helps you know and <laughs> when you're that's the part i still can't master like, <laughs> yeah yeah um but anyway, I was like, okay, so you know, you go to the website. I'm like, what the hell is Hang Snatch one 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 one? Like, <laughs> what is that? You know. And so, uh, but but so you know, it was interesting. I did my first like CrossFit workout, which was the bastardized version of it. And remember, just being like, what the hell is this, and why haven't I done this like in the past? Um, so all throughout the military, I had you know. Not only was CrossFit effective in, um, in addition to other things, but you know, CrossFit kind of being the foundation. Not only was it effective in physical preparedness, but it was also that way of connecting back to, frankly, my wife. You know, she owned a CrossFit gym, and and there were some amazing people in that community. And so it was this, it was this ability to taste some normalcy and kind of what life could be like, or give some reprieve from maybe some of what life was like. Um, and so that was just always a passion, you know, being an athlete, it was like, this is great modalities from a, from a performance standpoint, it made, it made sense. Um, and then, you know, kind of got out, started coaching at, at the gym, uh, at, at, at Morristown and was like, well, this is, um, I like, I like doing this. And so went on and took my level two and, um, Took my level three, passed that, uh, worked for, you know, tried out for the level one seminar staff and was was accepted onto that team and, and taught level ones for a little bit. And um, then, you know, was wondering, though, where, like, what else was there? You know, and, and, and frankly, there was oftentimes folks who I found, you know, in, in coaching and group fitness class, like, why are we still swinging the same kettlebell the same way? That was never quite a question that I could find a good answer for. Now, it's not necessarily the program's fault, but what's going on in that individual's life that is, fr frankly, keeping them from progressing? Like, do they even want to progress is, is a separate question. But, you know, generally speaking, you're paying good money. You're showing up. You're working hard. I would posit that you want to get better, that you want to progress. Um and I, and I think it does then come, kind of come down to that compartmentalization. And in some ways, you know, I get it. Nobody's going to be an Olympic athlete or prepare for a high-level performance, this or that. But if we're not looking at the whole person, 
and everything going on with them and their nervous system and their you know general stress and their environment and what their life looks like you know the 23 and a half hours outside of a workout or 23 hours outside of a workout their sleep their nutrition their you know what are they ingesting not just nutritionally but also mentally and emotionally um what what, what does all that look like then you know you start to add up a couple just a couple of these buckets and you realize oh well that's why we're swinging the same kettlebell the same the same way for the past you know two and a half years and so i found um i found strong fit um and and julian and richard's work to be refreshing because they were really the first people who were also sort of talking as to and speaking about and kind of explaining why what i was doing with my clients and personally with between the years why it was actually working uh, or what some of the science was behind it and so central to that is like is, is working with the nervous system and so i hadn't really had anyone explain it in a way that made sense beyond just <clears throat> academically what it is but how it presents physically when you're doing a workout and what some of the ramifications are and so you know, being a student of, of performance and, and frankly, I think it's more of like an athlete of life. Um, that's where I just continued to want to learn more and more and more. And then as you get to different layers, well, different, different needs pop up. And then that led to, okay, I'm working with people and doing these, you know, training people and running these events and hosting these you know, retreats and coaching types of things. Um, and people are disclosing information to me as a relative stranger that they're telling they haven't said to anybody in their life before. What the hell is happening? This is not about just swinging a kettlebell anymore. This is about something far deeper. And the connection was made, oh, it's about identity. And it's about who we are, who that person is, and perhaps who they want to be. And, and so that then led to um, wanting to have a certain <clears throat> certain level of, uh, frankly, professional, like ethical and moral responsibility. And so that then pushed itself into, right, I think I'm going to think, I think I'm going to do, you know, can do a fitness trainer standpoint, can, we can do the leadership, we can do all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but then being an actual therapist and a clinician to where if somebody is, is looking to truly have an integrated approach to their fitness, um, you know, we can't just look at the physical piece. We can't just look at the mental piece. Like it's the, the kind of like a three-legged tripod or physical, mental, and emotional uh, fitness create a tripod or create a stool rather. And the purpose of the stool isn't just to look like a pretty stool. The purpose of the stool is to support the person sitting on the stool. So if we want to be supported and, and have strength, then we better we better damn well be, be working on those three legs. And, um, you know, so that kind of, that kind of just it, the ball is continuing to roll, and I have no idea what next year's next year's layers and whatever adventures that unlocks will uh, will present itself. I guess when we get there. Yeah, well, it's been so fascinating um, watching Julian and Richard, you know, and the progression that happened with them because I heard them on Barbell Shrugged years ago. Julian was actually one of my first guests on the show, um, and back then it was really muscle imbalances. You know, we we're always. Um, pronated in CrossFit you know he was talking about supination and open hand grip and all that then it went to the nervous system you know I think he's been on the show four times now so I've got to kind of pick his brain and each of these new aha moments that they have 
But um, so he totally opened my eyes and, you know, some of the things that I've seen, because I've coached for, for quite a while now, I'm not saying I'm a great coach, but just time-wise, and was in CrossFit. I started as a, um, again, from the main site in 2006. So, you know, I've been in, in and watched that kind of metamorphosize, but th- I've seen so many athletes that either A, as you said, never have the courage to progress, to get the slightly heavier bell, go to, you know, turn it up a notch and or the most heartbreaking people that are in three or four times a week and are gaining weight the whole time you know so they they, they're doing the work they're understanding it but again that has to be the mental piece or the emotional piece is missing because if they were as strict with um, um you know the sleep hygiene their nutritional choices they would be in incredible shape but instead you're watching this kind of slide back so what are some of the observations? Well, let me let me rephrase that. What are some of the success stories where, when you addressed the mental slash emotional element of a particular athlete, you saw growth, you saw change? The first person that comes to mind um, is a is a client named Soli. Soli reached out asking if we ever worked with people who were significantly overweight. And this was before Between the Years had a physical location. Obviously, this was a few years ago. But, um, and we said, yeah, we have. Why don't you come on in? Let's have a chat. Let's see what's going on. So she came in and, um, you know, to across a class and said, all right, like, I'll kind of be by your side during it. You know, Coach was, Coach Santi was coaching the class and <clears throat> had about 15 people in it. One of these 9 a.m. classes, I think. And, uh, it's like, well, I'll just be, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of shadow you and be by your side. It wasn't something we do that's not our SOP. Normally, it would, frankly, it would just be like, hey, you want to take the class? Go on in and coach. Well, you're just one of the others now. Separate, separate conversation. But for this, for this case, it was, um, yeah, let me, let me, let me kind of be by your side. And it was apparent right away that um, this was not that, like there were certain, there was individual needs that needed to be tended to and the things we take for granted. So for example, we're doing just maybe some lunges some walking lunges or some punter kicks or whatever, just to warm up. So they had her hand on the wall doing a lunge was not in the realm of possibility at that current time. And, you know, this was somebody who, who, who has openly said like, yeah, getting in and out of the car, getting up the stairs, falling and getting back up. Those were the real, those were the real battles that had to be fought. And so she, uh, she, she came and she came back, which just that in of itself, you know, is just amazing. Like the fact that you walked through the doors initially is just incredible. And, um, so she had been involved with, uh, with Motown for a bit. And then I started and then got right away, pretty much right away. I was doing this weekend retreat where, I basically said, look, there's six spots and it's going to be from, you're going to, it's going to be from, you know, Friday to Sunday. This is the cost. Not telling you where we're going. I'm not telling you what we're doing. This is for somebody who really wants to challenge and learn about themselves. And she reached, she was the first person to reach out like a few weeks after maybe the same week. I don't even know, like after having seen this and I was thinking, holy shit. I don't know if this is actually like, would this be 
would she be able to do this? And I was kind of like, well, you know, you say this is probably for everybody. I have no idea who this person is. I don't know what their story is. I don't know what, what is within them. Um, and if this is for everybody and if that's the direction we're going, then who are you to say no and not extend that invitation? And, uh, and, and, and so she, and so she came and she was the first person to do it, uh, or the first person to sign up rather. And she was challenged big time. Like we did, it was a, it was a hard 48 hours of not just physical work, but also like some mental and emotional stuff too. And kind of digging into the internal work and she has, her trajectory has, has been nothing short of amazing. I mean, to the point now, um, around, what is it? Well, so she's done some, co- she's done coaching. She's a member here at between the ears, um, continues to, to, to just, to just inspire everybody basically. And one of the hardest working out there. And she went from, you know, having the stairs be a challenge to, I, I did this like six week event, nine week event that culminated in a 12 mile ruck into a six mile run. And I think she did like, she did like a 12, 10 or 12 mile ruck into, you know, three, four mile run, like legit. Yeah. I mean, and, and she's just a different person. And so, you know, that identity continues to, to change and to evolve. And, um, has, you know, the weight is not what we talk about. You know, she looks at, like she, you scan a room and, you know, when she first came, it was obvious like, okay, yeah, like you, you recognize it. And then to now you scan a room and it's not to say like you don't see her because that's not what I'm saying, but her, her, who she is physically, mentally, emotionally has changed and evolved and adapted. And, um, you know, she's, uh, she's, she's just an incredible person, but she's a student. She's open and she's curious and she fucking does the work. And I think that's the part that is a privilege and an honor to be one of her coaches because she does the work. And, and, and how she does it with that, with that athlete of life mentality, um, you know, and, and that's just been, it, it, it's, it's just been amazing to bear witness to. Yeah. Well, it's so good to hear. And I think that's the part, as you touched on, you know, with the class of 15, I love CrossFit. I'm a huge fan. You know, is it the perfect system? Does it cover everything? No. And I think in the tactical athlete space, I think CrossFit and strong fit together, Physically is a great combination, especially if you start understanding some of their you know, nutritional principles and nervous system principles. But um, the cl- one of the classes that I used to do, it's, it's kind of morphed a little bit into more of a tactical specific class now, but um, it was more basically a lot of the strong fit stuff. And every like two, three months, we'd do this sandbag carry, and then I'd take them up the, the parking structure that we have in town. And at the top is the roof, you know, it's open. And we'd all throw the sandbags down and then I'd just go around one by one and ask them their why. And it was beautiful because every so often it would change. But the first time, especially after the first person kind of opened up, you know, one of them was uh, sexually assaulted. So she felt vulnerable, you know, and she was wanting to to gain confidence. Another one, I think it was more of like a protective parent element to it. Um, you know, one was, it was a couple, so they were doing it for each other, you know, but you, you, you wouldn't know that unless you stopped and asked. And, you know, I think that's the part that we don't do very well in the coaching world is to really 
get to the root of of why someone wants to get it and let that be dynamic too. After they hit a particular goal, then what's next? What's next? You know, your goal was to get in and out of your car with no problem. Well, you're smashing that now. So we need to give you a new, you know, the sky's the limit. So yeah, I mean, it's so, so good to hear. Now with, with uh, that kind of mindset element, especially with the nervous system, a real aha moment I had a few years ago, um, Jeff Nichols came on the show, who's a, um, a SEAL, but he's huge in the, not to say huge, it's the wrong word, very well respected in the strength and conditioning world. And um, he really opened my eyes as to something that you wrote about or, or was, was covered in that article with the Greenberry Foundation um, of, you know, the RPE, like where you're at that day, because police, fire, EMS, dispatch, and we're coming off shift is not the time to take to do MRF. And I never thought about it. I used to think of that whole concept. And this is not that long ago, a few years ago. Oh, I'm going to sweat out my stress. I'm going to go crush it in the gym today. And then he really kind of held a mirror up and like, you're a fucking idiot. You're just adding stress to stress, you know? And then, so ever since then, I understood, all right, where I am out of 10. Okay. This is a good day to just, just go for a swim, go for a walk, still move, still get outside. And even if I do a CrossFit wad, I'm just going to do 60% of the weights, the intensity, whatever. So when did you get that kind of, uh, kind of realization of the, you know, what I would assume was the kind of selection workout mentality versus actually understanding that, that we as human beings have highs and lows and that needs to dictate how we move. So I started, um, I, I think I, I, I was doing it while I was in the military without knowing why the hell I was doing it. it I, I, I'll always say, and even as an athlete, I was very... Well, now I guess you would say like I was very somatic driven, but I was very intuitive. I was very feel based. Technically, yeah, fine. I had the skill, but it was all just kind of like more of that flow kind of where am I at? What do I need to do to be kind of optimal right now? And so if it felt right, it, like watch out. Um, some of my worst performances were when it was trying to falsely jack myself up. Or, you know, think too much or, or um, you know, not just meet myself where I was at. And time and time again, I was like, ah, just it just wasn't right. But when it was just like, look, this is where I'm at. I'm going to do whatever. And so then in the army, you know, I, I, I forget what the name of the book is. I think it was, I don't even know if it's available anymore. Anyway, we, you know, the thing we talk about, a big talking point would be this, okay, what's our arousal state? You need to have that optimal level of arousal to basically pay attention and take it seriously, but not so much arousal that it constricts all of your vision and you're just in this crazy overactive sympathetic. Of course, I didn't know about the sympathetic at the time and any of that, but knew like we just spoke arousal. So you got to kind of have that peak arousal to where uh, you're paying attention to where your nervous system is like responding as it needs to do. Um, but you also have that ability to view and observe and adjust accordingly and have a sort of dexterity and flow with things. And that was just kind of always in my mind when it came to training, because the ultimately the worst thing in the world would be to train hard and get hurt so that you couldn't go out and perform. And so there were some days where you could like the days that you knew, okay, today's the day to train really, really hard. And why is it? It never made sense to me to punish yourself in training or, tell some narrative that really wasn't the case, but sounded sort of like kind of beat your chest. Like that just never really made sense to me. And I never really found those to be valuable 
anyway. And then learning about polyvagal theory and really actually and diving into it and, and just kind of becoming slightly obsessed with it and then using it with clients was huge. Um, and the other thing is like using it with clients in a non-fitness setting, you know, using it with some clinical clients who we're not talking about let's improve your performance by 2% and we're going to make amazing gains. This is people who are just, who, who are, depressed and unmotivated or super anxious or angry and and looking at how do we how can we how how can we create a dialogue and a vernacular to accurately portray where we are and safely and effectively get us to where we want to be and polyvagal theory informs us beautifully on that you know if you're in this sort of dorsal vagal collapse shutdown mode um, we need to mobilize. Like, what's the function of that? Well, it's immobilizing us. It's stopping us. It's driving with the brakes on. It's something's going on. Um, so, you know, maybe it's sure. Maybe sometimes it would be like hitting something hard, but minimum minimum effective dose kind of deal for training over time is really what we're looking at. Um, and so maybe we just need to move a little bit. And so we had, you know, kind of tested it a little bit uh, with, with with different programs here or there. Uh, and then the same way too, like if you're kind of in that sympathetic overdrive, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not the right time to, to go lose your soul in a workout. Um, if, if it's an overactivation, like where are we on that spectrum and on that range? And so that has been, that has sort of been the evolution of it. Um, from just like what's worked as an athlete, as you know, special forces, that all of that kind of tactical athlete stuff, to then what do people need in their day to day life? And so, so now for you know, with between the ears, we have a assessment every day they go through, it takes about two minutes, and it's all based on polyvagal theory on looking at what's our physical, what, what's the signals like physically, mentally, and emotionally. So, if we think about physical. You know what is what's 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 that state like? Soreness, numb, like all of the whatever energy wise, mental, like what's that story like? You know, and, th- and there's questions that I'll ask people, and or they'll look at and kind of go through. Are we feeling agitated? You know, are we feeling a little numb? Are we feeling like just ready to rock and roll, like good times, like thumbs up? Uh, and then emotionally, you know, where are we at emotionally? Again, some of that is it a disconnect, numb, rage, uh, just just in, in, invigorated and what what's a win for the day and and um you know how how then will we proceed forward with that it, it, as a way to to work with the nervous system more than uh certainly not working against it which is yeah post shift you know especially depending upon if it was a, a if it was an active one and then we dial it up with murph um very likely we're working against our nervous system than with it. And well, I can't sleep. Well, why not? Well, I don't know. You know, this, and, and where, what are we going to then look at? Well, I take a pill to sleep and then, you know, I take caffeine to wake up and then, but I'm still hitting it hard every day and, and all of that. And, you know, we can kind of uh, look at that and, and sort of, I think if we look at it, not critically or, or, or not, yeah, certainly not cynically, but if we look at it and say, you know, is, is does that align with what we sort of know now uh, from a from more of a scientific way 
And, and is that helpful? How is the rest, how is what you're doing here influencing the rest of your life? And how is the rest of your life influencing what you do here? And what is the interplay between those? And, you know, I, I think certainly from a fitness, from a holistic integration standpoint, to not do that is like, you know, it's like, this is wildly irresponsible if we're considering ourselves coaches and, and we're not doing it. And, um, and of course, the tricky part with that and, and, and the reason why I know people avoid it, because the, it, it, it becomes a slippery slope to dark places fairly quickly when somebody's working through a life situation that is very intense, you know, and what's the setting like to have that conversation? Is it appropriate to have that conversation? If somebody's that you'll never know what somebody walks in with. And even if you ask, you might not really know. So it's like, it's, it's, it's not so much about what are we doing in this particular day? That's important. Yes. But what does maybe the last week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, month, six months, year look like? I mean, the pandemic is a perfect example. Um, it was a fascinating example with, 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 where people went and what they what they kind of needed and 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 perhaps it's still going on for many folks but um you know when you understand that people people eating poorly is not just it's it's not for lack of knowing I always say this like it's not for lack of knowing it's it's lack of feeling or feeling something inaccurate that's feeding up and and overriding that that rational mind that that you know frontal cortex of the mind like it's it's something more in those motive systems um, that are influencing us, and so you know when we move physically, it certainly, you know, it certainly helps. But there's deeper levels to it. Mental health and fitness is something that like oh, mental health, fitness is good for your mental health. Yes, but not all fitness. Sorry, <laughs> uh, you know that's something I think that's like bumper sticker kind of theory. Doesn't really I don't like bumper sticker theory. <laughs> And, you know, there's, there's plenty of studies, a, col- a study at college came out. They basically looked at high intensity versus, uh, slower intensity, uh, versus nothing in with hit in, as it relates to depression. Cause that's kind of one of my specialties, areas of interest, personal struggles. And, uh, anyway, so they found that both high intensity and low intensity, positively influenced symptoms of depression or negatively, but it was, it was better for people's symptoms of depression. They went down. However, with high intensity, their perceived levels of stress were like significantly larger than those who did lower intensity. And so then they're stressed out during whatever. And then they would say like my overall mental health is perhaps less is, is not as good. And it's like, well, these are college students during finals week that they're doing this. And so they were just they were just hitting it high intensity three, four times a week. They were feeling less depressed, but their stress was was way higher. What's going on there? Is that and so looking at, you know, mental health and physical fitness, what's the signaling, what's the stimulus going into the brain to be interpreted and made meaning for? You know, there's some nuance there. And and that's where as coaches Frankly, in the in, in the coaching space, that's not really something that they dig into. Scope is a big thing that people feel like I can't talk to somebody who's potentially uh, suicidal or having suicidal ideation. In what do I do if somebody's having a meltdown? 
you know, it, these are questions that are very real, you know, and it, but it's, it's up to, I think us to have the conversations and to do the deep work and, you know, to maybe sometimes go against popular belief or long held kind of, uh, bumper sticker theories, you know? Absolutely. Well, and I think that's it. I've seen, um, actually my, my bonus boy, my stepson, um, was going through some stuff and, uh, the same class, you know, we did sled pushes and he could, you could tell he was kind of given up and I would just give him a little kick up the ass and he would push and then he'd have this emotional release and be in tears, you know, but that was, that was a positive thing. Um, really interestingly, uh, Johan Hari wrote a couple of books and in one of them he talks about, um, this one weight loss study where they basically gave all the nutrients IV. And they were, you know, expecting all these people to drop all this weight, which they did. And one of the kind of stars of the group um, lost the most. One day she fell off the wagon and they followed up and, you know, said, you know, what was going on? And she ended up, you know, eating KFC or whatever it was and putting weight back on. And someone kind of like we were talking just then said, well, let's, you know, what about the, the, the mental side? What about the emotional side? So they, they um, brought in a, a psychologist and they asked her, you know, when, when was it that you first started eating? Oh, when I was eight. Did anything bad happen to you when you were eight? So yeah, that's when my grandfather first molested me. So then, reverse engineer, does this woman want to be slim and attractive in the defense mechanism state that she's in at the moment? No. You know, so if we're not getting to these root causes, there might be an emotional pushback to actually losing weight, getting stronger, you know, being faster, whatever it is, because of you know, untold trauma that we haven't addressed yet. And obviously the other element is, you know, if food is a coping mechanism, if you're filling a void with food, that's another thing. If you're not addressing the trauma in the first place, you're going to continue to to eat the wrong thing. So, yeah, I mean, is it uncomfortable to have conversations? Actually, no. Once you just have conversations with people, but the fear of the unknown, I think, stops a lot of people. But ultimately, as you know, conversations with someone who's in a very, very dark place are really no different than what we're having now because they just need someone to offload to, to talk to. And obviously, if they're in crisis, then you get them to the right person as well or facility, whatever it looks like. But yeah, I mean, if you're, if you don't have the courage to address that element, then yeah, should you really be responsible for the wellness of a group of people, whether it's in a gym or whether it's in a medical office? Yeah. You know, and I think that's a, it's an important conversation to have. Um, because it, does it mean that everybody comes in and they're like here for, for between the years, not everybody comes in and has therapeutic session or, or has therapy. I'm not saying, okay, so tell me about, you know, all the awful things that happened in your past. You don't need to actually ask that to, 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 to be told it either. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, some of the, the negative activities that we do, the negative actions, the vices, the addictions, uh, the self-harm, um, you know, really what, what we're looking at is just an, an agonizing state of the present that somebody wants to escape from. And that's how they do it. Some people do it through socially acceptable things like work. Other people do it through socially unacceptable things like drugs, alcohol, you know, whatever the A's are. And so that is something that when we look at, um, you know, there's a, there's a, 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 a 
uh, Dr. Gabor Mate is one of, I would say, my role models and mentors, even though I've never met the guy. But he has a thing that says, you know, don't tell me about your trauma um, tell, or don't tell me about your addiction. Tell me about your pain. And at the root of all addiction is, is some sort of trauma and what that is for each person. It's not always I was in a truck and we got hit with an IED. That not, that's, that's just one, that's like kind of capital T type one trauma. There's so many lowercase t type two traumas that are more relational, not just um, situational, uh, that when we look at some people, especially with eating, you know, uh, well, not just with eating, but with, with so many where this was somebody who needed to be connected to and loved and seen and heard and acknowledged. And that was shattered or fractured or stolen from them at an age where they were defenseless and they had nothing. They didn't have any other way to deal with this unbearable pain other than escaping that moment. And that is a very, very real thing. And it's very, it's, it's, it's subconscious in many ways. You know, when people say, yeah, this, this, um, you'll hear, you know, sadly children of rape, describe the scene as if they were watching it from their ceiling. That is the, that, that is dissociation and that is a defense mechanism because if they were present in their body, it would be so overbearing and overwhelming to their system and state that they would perhaps die. You know, if babies aren't touched and held, they will die. <laughs> this is not like a luxury item. Connection is not a luxury item. And, that's all well and good uh, <clears throat> in the sense of, okay, that's what we're dealing with. But then, you know, fast forward 30 some odd years or however many years, and you look at the, the social dynamic, the, the, the sometimes in many ways the power structure between coach and, and athlete and how some people respond well to getting a kick up the ass. Other people, that is re-experiencing potentially a trauma. And so as a coach, your job is not to direct them, but is to partner with them and, and, and figure out this incredibly diverse, unique puzzle of an organism uh, and, and their story and say, hey, let's look at this shoulder to shoulder. Like, let's swing across the table and take a peek at it versus this kind of head on situation. And when we uh, I have this like the one thing that accounting did for me actually was teach me something called a T account, which is basically like debits and credits. Like on the left side, it, you know, whatever goes on the left side that makes the thing go up, whatever goes on the right side, usually dollars makes the thing go down. And so, um, you know, if you were to invest in whatever your fund is or your account, you know, you'd want to have it go up and the, you invest into humans through connection and, you know, I kind of use the acronym cash. So you invest cash into, into people and cash stands for con its connection, but that is, um, being acknowledged, seen and heard. And when we look at trauma and when we look at people who have dysfunction in these at early ages, which put them on a path towards, you know, perhaps unhealthy ways of coping and dealing with things, there's usually, some sort of issue at an attachment period, a critical developmental attachment period in their lives. And as a human being, not being seen, heard, and acknowledged um, creates, creates significant issues. So as coaches, you know, we need to connect with our people 
um, either in a fitness setting or a clinical setting, and, and really just trying to see here and acknowledge them is uh, is, is kind of, I, I think, the recipe. Uh, of course, it doesn't. It, there's a lot that goes into it. We need to get better at that. But that's the craft, and that's the adventure, really, of being a coach and of being a clinician. That you know, if we do that, then I think we can certainly partner with the people who we do genuinely want to serve and help you know grow that inner strength and find that inner peace. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned Dr. Mate as someone I want to get on. I've tried once actually, and, um, you know, a lot of these people, they only have time for a few. So, uh, trying to make yourself one of those podcasts that becomes the few, um, is, you know, definitely a, a goal. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, phenomenal. Um, so I want to touch on one more area and then we'll switch to some closing questions if you're still good with time. Um, the, the, another thing that I, I see, and again, let me preface this, it purely depends on, how you choose your social media and what your feed looks like. Obviously, it can be very toxic, can be very positive. Mine's very positive and super easy for everyone out there. The secret is if someone's an asshole, hit the block button. Boom. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but, uh, but what there is a tendency is again, that kind of Instagram facade where we just show the best. And I've seen, you know, it seems to come up a lot in your writing and your interviews. Um, and not, you know, picking on individuals, but, you know, the get up but before the sun comes up, crush it, all that kind of stuff, which is so bad for this audience because we're already up all fucking night. So to have a guy telling you don't go to bed or that following night, just sleep, you know, less and get up early and crush your goals, I think is, is a horrible, horrible message. Now, there are anomalies out there that can do it successfully and they are acknowledged, but they are also a, a minute percentage of the human population. So what is your perspective on, you know, what you see across social media? And do you find that some of these people, you know, through maybe no fault of their own, but these these high, high achievers may sometimes not actually encourage but discourage people because of the level of athleticism that they found themselves at? That's a great question. And again, I, I think I, I, I'll echo your kind of sentiment with saying, like, it does depend on how you curate it. Uh, and everybody's sort of triggered by different things. I think the more passionate we are about, <clears throat> you know, understanding health, being a student of it, wanting to rip the bumper sticker bullshit off of what we see and actually take the time to have the conversations. Um, I, I, I would say that I'm, I am triggered by that stuff. Um, in a similar way, like that's kind of I, like, there's a reason why I don't post cool guy pictures. Like I'll post maybe like I have like one or two maybe every now and then, but I'm not out there posting pictures of kid and nods and guns and this and that. And, and frankly, it's because I think it perpetuates it's speaking to the social media issue. It perpetuates this. It's a hologram. There's the image there, but there's no fucking substance to it. And that hologram is what then people model after. Or what they think they need to do. What they think. There's plenty of dudes who are at the elite levels who are scumbags. Who I don't want my son, my stepson to grow up and emulate. No fucking way. But it was a Green Beret. Successful Green Beret at that. And you're like, no, I don't care. But but that, that sort of form without essence is just like, for me, uh, that is a major, major trigger. And so when it comes to the health piece... What are we trying to say with get up before the sun? You know, what are we trying to say with 
relentlessly pursue our stuff and just attack it and just go and go and go. You know, I, I think that if we look to extract the essence of that instead of just echoing what it sounds like, but actually di- like picking it apart and diving into it, um, one, it probably sounds a lot less chest, you know, chest bumpish kind of than, than, it, than it would be. Uh, versus just saying, you know, get up before the sun and, you know, accomplish your goals before, before your first cup of coffee. Um, and then it's also, I think, an invitation for people to explore in their own life. What, what does that mean for them? Um, because I never really thought it was that big of a deal, but yeah, you know, social media tells a lot of people how shitty at life they're doing because what they see is this, well, they're, look at them. They're in wherever they are, you know, with, with all of the pictures and the, everything looks perfect. And, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like when ESPN does their highlights or top 10 plays of like, whatever, let's just say a basketball game. And it's all all alley-oops and half court shots. Like that wasn't the game. (laughs) That was like two seconds during a 48 minute game or whatever it might be. Um, you, you know, you can't live, don't live the highlight reel. Um, and I think a lot of those types of social media like accounts, and I see it in the veteran space as well. And, and I, I think there's a shift, like there are some people who are doing a good job of, of having a more like human based approach versus just the same old kind of nonsense regurgitated. Um, but then on the flip side, I think that there is that invitation to, like there's the whole like eat that frog. Have you heard about that book? Like eat that frog. It's like basically you do the hardest thing or the thing you don't want to do in the morning because you've already gotten that out of the way. And then whatever else you do afterwards is be better. And, you know, I think for some folks who maybe never quite experienced the adversity that people who put their life on the line have, that makes sense. Like I, I get where you'd say, like, all right, right on. Like I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna like, you know, challenge myself and do something hard. Uh, I get that. It's a little underwhelming to me. It, like it's very underwhelming to me actually, um, because what's hard for, like, I don't know, obviously, too much about you personally, but what's hard for people who who fall into our archetype is fucking asking for help. Is maybe not going it is taking a sick day is saying like hey i'm like i'm like not good right now i need to like go be good and being good doesn't mean doing more it means like tending to my shit um and so hard is just hard is 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 totally subjective and i and, and i do think that you know with if you have a platform and i certainly don't have a platform the small platform that i do have i try to have um an honest conversation and document engagement with life in a real way that can hopefully be a breath of fresh air and cut through some of the noise, which is do this and, and, and be sort of this, this hologram. Like I'm like the anti hologram life, you know, I don't know if that, if that answered uh, that question. No, and it did. I mean, it's funny because it takes us back to Simone Biles again, but yeah, I mean, you know, look at it from a nervous system point of view. I mean, clearly she was a burnout at that one moment. And I think that's very important. That's something I've actually done a lot in my life. I couldn't give a shit if I'm calling in with a fake cough or whatever. When it's 
either I need to be there for my family or I'm just totally smoked, then I would, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy with, you know, barely a day in my sick bank account. And that's not some sort of, you know, badge of honor. It was just like, well, these are days off. Why am I going to hoard them? I'm going to use them periodically so that I can maximize my, you know, emotional, physical, mental wellness. So yeah, I think that that's just it. Sometimes you should post on Instagram, got up at 10, feel fucking amazing. <laughs> the sun's been out for hours. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because that was what was appropriate that day. And I think it is, you know, we are a unique group, you know, first responders, military, you know, ER, physicians and nurses where we, especially our professions, you know, we, we are put through the ringer from day one. And then our profession continues to put through the ringer. So you don't need that chest beating, you know, stuff. And I've told even, I had, um, Jason from Go Rock on. They do these like overnight, um, you know, rucks and stuff. And I'm like, dude, I didn't sleep for 14 years. There's no fucking way you're going to get me doing anything overnight. Like I've already been there, done that. I've got nothing to prove to myself. But for the person that was the accountant, absolutely go, go, go experience a suck. My new suck now looks differently. I'm back in jujitsu. I want to get better with weapons. You know, they're kind of like, community sheepdog style things that I'm putting myself but just suffering you know I've got enough places to suffer during the daylight hours I don't need to do it <laughs> at night anymore so yeah it is a very interesting perspective to understand what your normal day looks like and is that message really apples to apples to you the Green Beret police officer firefighter yeah and I and I, I love that because you know and, and the suffering piece I think how we interpret suffering is it is worthy of a conversation and further look, you know, um, I'm not really a religious dude, but Buddhism certainly aligns with a lot of what I feel is a, is, is a, is a nice way to approach life. And, you know, they kind of have that suffering as life and suffering is inevitable. And so, uh, rather than denying what would happen if we accept our suffering and make meaning of it. And I think that's where we have these types of events. That's where we have these types of physical things. If they're, oh, if it's just, you know, there's a difference between suffering and being a masochist. And that is an important point, I think, for some folks to really look into a little bit more. Um, and, and what does it mean to suffer? Um, why are we doing hard things or why are we not doing, e quote unquote, easy things? And what does that say about how we approach life and, and fundamentally who we are? And so when we look at suffering from a, you know, from a, well, here's well with Simone Biles. Like, I don't know if this was the case, and, and I'm not going to be rude and Google it right now. But was she one of Larry Nasser's athletes? I'm not sure, but it's a very good point. So, like, somebody critical of her. Like, how fucking dare you? If she was one of Larry Nasser's victims, tell me that's not like victim kind of. Oh, victims, another one, right? Like. Don't be the victim. Don't be the victim. Okay. Well, there are victims in life. Well, know, a lot they're... of them didn't get the choice to be a victim when it first happened. Yeah. yeah. They didn't put the victim shirt on. And so, you know, that's at a whatever age. And this has been a, a years of this. And, you know, who knows what things trigger what things. There's The unconscious is a unknowable sort of depth to there. And things that, you know, then that's the, that's the nasty thing about trauma as well. You know, there's... There's things that, um, so anyway, so for the suffering, you know, that is, that is a natural part of life, I think. Um, 
but how we approach it and why we seek to understand it, I think is like a, an amazing opportunity. And every day, and this was, you know, one of the things with veterans, especially, or people who are having mental health uh, challenges, which we all do, like every single day, you have an opportunity to be who you are and who you really do want to be. And how you go about and explore that is in some ways up to you, not entirely. And I get it. There's different influences in our, you know, you within your environment does shape that. But rather than listening to the blue check marks or the pundits or the whatevers, you know, what would it mean to listen to yourself and to then, you know, plot your own course and pull out your, you know, pull out your own compass, so to speak, and know what is my north? What is, what, what are my four cardinal directions that don't tell me exactly where I am? That's not what a compass does. It doesn't tell you exactly where you are. It just tells you kind of where you're going. But if you're lost and you look at your map, you're like, I have no fucking idea where I am. One of the, just, just shoot one of those azimuths, just generally north. That's like the emergency one. Walk that path, that pillar, that cardinal direction of who you are and who you want to be. And that's agency, like the ability to choose among choices. And, and follow that. So your cardinal directions won't tell you where you are, they, but, but they'll, they're necessary to help you get unlost if you don't want to just rely on luck. And so I think that's some of the embracing what does suffering mean to me. And, you know, for, for folks like us, like yeah, doing hard shit, like physically, like, okay, I mean, do, <laughs> that's not hard. That's not suffering. That's not it. Um, you know, there's the, kind of back to that three-legged sort of stool thing, like the mental and the emotional piece. And it's beautiful that you said that, like, you use those days that are there to be used. <laughs> like, those those mental health days, those personal days, those family days, those sick days, you know, if anything, you know, that says more about you caring for your craft and being a professional than the person who's just going to blow through that based upon what they think others are going to think of them, which they're not thinking about them. And then saying, look at me. And it's like, great, now you're a liability because you're not rested, because you haven't slept, because you're stressed out at home, because your wife or husband is doing all of the work for the kids and you're just worthless when you get home because you haven't taken your health into account. Like, dude, that's weak as shit in my mind, you know, not, not looking at that stuff. So I think it's beautiful that that's the case for you. Brilliant. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll end that part with that truth bomb there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I want to transition to some closing questions. We'll make sure obviously we'll get to between the years as well. The first one I love to ask, um, and the, the book that you were talking about with the psychology, was that on combat, Dave uh, Grossman's book? No. So it was not Grossman's book, but I think he was a contributor to it. Um, it wasn't an on book because um, I know he's wrote like he's wrote on, on, uh, on killing on combat. Warrior mindset. Okay. Beautiful. Warrior mindset. And I think Grossman, I, I know Grossman contributed to it. Um, yeah. And somehow it's not, it's somehow it's not, I mean, I think it was, it was just so far ahead of its time. You know, so this is now what, uh, what year is it? 2021? This is like 11 years later. So if that thing came out now, you know, whatever, but it's an academic read. It's a, but it's a brilliant book. You know, it's a brilliant book. Brilliant. Were there any other books that you love to recommend? Yeah, for sure. So a huge reader. I love reading. Um, my, my, my kind of top five, I would say, 
Man's Search for Meaning. Love the Alchemist. It's a beautiful tale and an inspiring story. Uh, a huge Brene Brown fan, so uh, daring greatly. Uh, she really has, I think, uh, built upon the connection piece in a, in, a, in a beautiful way. In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, being Gabor Matei's work. Um, polyvagal Theory. Pretty much anything about Polyvagal Theory. Um you know, there's the ones like The Body Keeps the Score, which is Bessel van der Kolk. He's another just uh, trauma-informed doctor, psychologist, therapist. Um, and then, you know, there's another one, Waking the Tiger Within, which is uh, written by Peter Levine, who created Somatic Experiencing, which partners with the body to work through and actually like unlock and um, heal trauma that's not talk therapy. Um, and so somatic experiencing is the modality <clears throat> through which he does that, uh, which is great. And then the last one I would say would be um, uh, internal family systems from a, that's by Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's a therapist. I think he taught at Harvard or something, some like, you know, wicked smart guy. Um, and his model for, his model for engaging in conversation with people is essentially like you have, everybody has parts of themselves. And so actually working with that, you know, working with those parts. And so my therapist actually, uh, practices in that. And as soon as I graduate my program, that'll be probably the first core train, like intensive training course I'll do, um, and you don't have to be a therapist to do that, but it, 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 that's a, it, that list right there I think would, would, would be great reading for anybody in a coaching profession, really, like, like talking about human connection. Absolutely. Yeah, there's several on there that I actually own that I haven't got to, to read yet because of the beautiful part of doing three interviews a week is that's a lot of authors that <laughs> sort of reading. <laughs> um, actually, there's a guy I'm coming on on uh, Sunday, codenamed Johnny Walker. I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was an Iraqi interpreter that ended up being attached to the SEAL teams. I think, I think it was SEAL Team 3. Um, but anyway, so he's, uh, yeah, he's coming on, but I mean, God, there's just so many amazing stories, but yeah, I mean, um, Dr. Mate's book and uh, the body keeps a score. I mean, this, these, these come up over and over again. So I need to kind of shift my, uh, my bookshelf a little bit to get it to the top. Brilliant. All right. What about movies or documentaries? Any of those that you love? Uh, the usual suspects was like my favorite movie growing up. I love that movie. <laughs> um, We'll go with that. Documentaries. I'm a sucker for pretty much any any and all documentaries. Um, there's a documentary out now, actually, like a Gabor Mate one, The Wisdom of Trauma, um, which is free. So anybody, I don't know when this is going to come out, but um, they're doing like showings. It's online. It's like an hour and a half. It is it is amazing. Um, but man, yeah, documentary, all of them. Uh, anything that's yeah, all of them. I love all of them. <laughs> Brilliant. Beautiful. All right, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Uh, for sure, Gabor Matei. That would be, you know, that, that would be right up there. I don't think I know any of these like big hitters. I mean, Brene Brown, you know, she's 
she's phenomenal. I would say those, if, if you could get those two on, like, yeah, what a what a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I've, I've written to both of them, but I'm going to try again. Dr. Eager, though, I told you was coming on the Auschwitz survivor. She became a psychologist. So she's basically like a, another Dr. Frankel, basically. So when you hear her work, I mean, the gift and, um, oh my goodness, what was her other book? I'm, I'm blanking on it, but... um. Yeah, I mean, just you talk about trauma, you talk about, you know, resilience, you talk about forgiveness. I mean, I'm so excited to interview her. So maybe that might open some doors to some of the other more well-known names in the, you know, the psychology space. Yeah. Yeah, that would be great. I think um, actually, you know, who would be great would be um, Deb Dana. So Deb Dana took Steve, Dr. Stephen Porges created polyvagal theory and he basically looked at why are it was about like kind of heart rate stuff and he looked at it in infants and so this you know kind of hrv why is in some cases it good for infants and why is in some cases his heart rate situation um uh like like bad and 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 a correlate to like them perhaps dying or whatever and i forget exactly the the whole cardiac kind of thing but it was a it was the cardiac paradox, essentially, is what he called it. So then he developed polyvagal theory, which is you know hyperarousal, hypoarousal, looking at the vagus nerve and the ventral dorsal sides of it, as well as the sympathetic. But like the dude is a mad scientist. Well, Deb Dana is a social worker, and so she's an LCSW, and I believe me, a, a doctor, I think. And so she took his work and made it human speaking, <laughs> and so. Her book, actually, The Polyvagal Theory and Therapy, would be another addition to that book. I mean, create, get a new pen on that because you're going to underline a doggy ear and make notes on pretty much every fucking page. <laughs> and um, she could probably speak very elegantly and very scientifically to, and with her extensive experience, why it's that important. Um, so Deb Dana, I would, if you can get her on too, that would be really i think helpful for for service members awesome yeah and i have never heard that name before it's funny i just listened to andrew huberman who's coming on the show at some point hopefully but he touched on i guess they're questioning some of the the vague the vagus nerve specifically its function you know physiologically so it would be kind of cool to hear you know her perspective and if it aligns if it can you know whatever it is but just get more information because i mean and HRV, sadly, I think it became so myopic as um, a metric that people kind of lost the the big picture, you know. So, um, yeah, I mean that's an area that when you mentioned it, I'm very very undereducated on. So that's a great suggestion. Thank you. Yeah, that's it's it, and she's she's truly a gift, like through her writing and through her work. Yeah, it's amazing. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure we can find, you know, your gym and your work yourself. Um, what do you do to decompress? I like journaling. Uh, big fan of journaling. Uh, I enjoy going for a walk. Um, you know, previously I'll be open. Like I would, uh, a decompression would be nicotine or alcohol. And I'm too over two and a half years now uh sober so no you know i don't drink anymore and i'm kicking a nicotine addiction as well and um you know anything that really allows me to connect to the present and be in the experience and in my body 
uh, and and I found journaling, going for a walk, you know, reading for sure, just having a good conversation like with my wife if, if that's possible, uh, and just really kind of being present um, and, and and appreciative. And so rather than saying I always do this, sometimes. You know, sometimes I'm not, sometimes it's not conducive to, to that. Like if I'm driving, maybe I can't <laughs> journal, right? But like maybe I can, maybe I can speak about what I'm feeling and, and, and having it be like a vocal journal. So pretty much anything that allows me to physically be present and appreciative and feel my body in the present moment um, when the need to decompress is there is, is helpful and, and wide ranging, which is, I think, a benefit. Brilliant. Now, you mentioned about writing letters to your wife. Um, you know, you touched on the subject in one of the other podcasts that you did. As you were deployed, did you notice that when you wrote home and or journaled, if you were at that point, um, that there was a sense of catharsis, um, catharsis that you were observing even at that? Yeah, I I actually had a journal. I had a small journal. We I didn't we didn't bring anything resembling military anything. So you know, this was like flying over and you know, a suit on business class and whatever. Just a, it was an interesting experience for sure. But I did make sure I brought a journal uh, and, you know, I had a clean phone and all of that kind of stuff. But uh, so I was hesitant about what I would actually write because I knew coming back would be, you know, perhaps everything would be subject to inquiry. So I was very careful with what I actually did make real. Uh, but my, some of my more challenging thoughts, I certainly did. And there was a catharsis to it, um, even if that didn't solve it. Like I think that's you know one of the things with journaling, and so a huge advocate of journaling. But sometimes people approach it like it's going to solve their problems, and they're writing like, or they're writing a business plan, or they're like they're writing a paper, or they're writing an explanation. And and I in my experience, like what journaling does is it just it, it's a meditative practice that allows you to raise your awareness on your thoughts, and then. Get enough distance from them to either observe them and perhaps question the, you know, do these thoughts just exist or are they true? And that can be different sometimes. Um, but that cathartic element through that physical expression, um, which obviously is not a workout, but the act of writing, like even from a brain standpoint, you know, our hands take up most of our, uh, like a significant part of our sensory and, um, and motor cortex is in the brain and like the homunculus. And so when we hold a pen, my opinion, my belief is that by holding a pen, we tap into a part of our brain and that triggers to us safety. Like what do we do when we slip before we reach for something? And so when we're holding something and that's common with people, that is common with people in, with, with some mental health things, like giving them something to hold, to caress, to play with, to whatever can help kind of with this regulation. So, by holding a pen and going pen and paper or letter writing, I think you tap into like a very ancient thing within your brain that's that's perhaps giving a sign of safety so that you can then sort of purge and clear your thoughts and then examine them uh, without hopefully without attachment, without judgment. And um, and when I was overseas, for sure, that was that was helpful where it didn't it certainly didn't fix any problems. Uh, those problems were not mine to fix anyway, but how I was interacting with them, it raised my awareness to then see, okay, this is something either that I need to change perhaps my approach to, 
um, because now I've made it real. And I've, instead of it bouncing around in my head or in my heart, it's now on paper. And now, you know, what is my willingness to then engage with this? If I'm not happy with my teammates, with my wife, with my whatever, uh, you know, what am I, where, where can I find the opportunity to engage and influence this? And, um, you know, certainly journaling helps that from a catharsis. And sometimes it just does help to vent and get it out. Whereas talking to another human being, depending upon who you have or don't have in your life, that's not always an option for folks. The pen and the paper inherently do not judge. We might judge ourselves because of it, but they are not judging us. And there's no face looking back at us. Um, there's nobody too busy or saying, oh, let me just respond to this text real quick, where you're about to like share something, you know, that you need to. And perhaps then you're like, oh, man, well, then I'm not enough, you know, and then I'm not I'm not worth your time. And it kind of gets into this thing. So. You know, journaling, that pen, that pad is is always there for folks. And um, I just can't speak to I just can't speak highly enough about it. That's such a you know profound kind of perspective. And you know, I, I did the five minute journal very, very brief in the morning. But even that and then the I've heard a lot of people say having the, the journal by the bed. So if you have thoughts rattling around your head, then you just write them down and that kind of gets out of it too. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the touch element and even like I've noticed when I try and write, I kind of get frustrated and then I, I speed up and, you know, kind of let go. So even that I think is a big mirror to me. Like, Hey, you shouldn't be frustrated writing. Maybe that's a sign that, you know, you need a little bit yeah. more mindful practice in your life. So well, that's one of the things is like, there's if you if you if you show up honestly and you don't judge and you just start you're doing it right and the conditions that you create within you are the value and the benefit not like what's on the paper because what's on the paper might not make any goddamn sense <laughs> like in some of these cases you might be like what am i what even know it doesn't matter you're like there's some if you if you approach it authentically and so there's the morning there's the night um you know there's one of the things that I'm a big believer in and one of the programs and coaching programs that I have with people is like a 12-week thing where you have a guided journal section after every workout. So the prescription is do the workout, simple workout, uh, challenging to varying degrees, but nonetheless like technically simple, logistically simple, and then write about it afterwards. And here's some questions in case you have writer's block. And James, the depth, the, the resistance that people like, I've, I'm freaked out about, I'm good with the movement part, whatever. I do hard things. I'm like, like the journal part. It's amazing how like two, three, four weeks into this, when people do it, they're like, wow, I'm, I'm really uncovering some stuff. And so like as a starting point, I would say, Hey, throw your journal in your gym bag or, or leave it in the gym or whatever your situation is, pen and paper and integrate it as part of your cool down. You want to do a little rolling, want to do a little stretching, want to just lay, sit back and drink some water after one of those. Great. You know, wipe your, wipe your wrists, open up the pen and paper and just go be honest. Don't judge and just start. And, uh, doing that after a workout, cause we speak to our unconscious through the body. And now with the journal, we kind of are the medium to kind of capture some of this. And it's a, it's a, it's a trippy experience. A lot of people roll their eyes at it and they're like, that sounds stupid. And then they, I'll get a message like a year later being like, damn it, I wish I wasn't so cynical. And it's like, well, that's okay. We're all at a different point. <laughs> it's, it's a cool thing. Uh, there was a guy, uh, Tom Hewitt, um, that came on and he started a foundation in South Africa called Surfers Not Street Children. Um, and uh, they would do therapy sessions on the beach with the kids after the surf session. 
So that really, you know, parallels that. I mean, you are in a kind of state of euphoria. I think some of those mental doors are much more likely to be open post-workout. Again, as long as you've chosen the appropriate one, you're not more frustrated after than you were before. So, yeah, I mean, it's such a unique perspective. And I think that what you've uncovered and, and where you found yourself is is really interesting because I've had, you know, first responders and military members that have become you know, psychologists, but not really coaches that really explored and, and really pursued the mental health side as well. Or just, just the, you know, the, the wellness, emotional wellness side too. So I'm sure people are fascinated. If they want to learn more about, you know, your gym, your online platforms, where are the best places to go? Yeah. So the best place would be my personal Instagram, Bill Anthes. Um, <clears throat> that's going to be where I'll put everything. Um, I have a I have a um, Instagram handle between the ears as well BTW and the ears, uh, but my personal handle is <clears throat> where I would point you to go and, and, and document and follow. Some things on between the ears, I I'll post some things personally that I won't you know kind of on the between the ears, and there is some redundancy there. But um, yeah, if you go to my personal account, you'll have everything you need to know if you're interested in learning more and hopping in along for this crazy ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill, I just want to say thank you again. I love these long-form conversations. I mean, we've gone everywhere from, you know, trauma to, you know, Olympic gymnasts and, you know, nervous system and all kinds of places. But it's so important, you know, and I think the more layers that we have and the more perspectives that we have, it really not only adds to our own education, but it strips down a lot of the bullshit that we've been taught for the last few decades um, so thank you so much for being, you know, so transparent and so generous with your time today. James, it's truly an honor, man. And, and, uh, thank you for, you know, continuing your service through this platform and giving a, a wide range of people the opportunity to share their passions and their voice and, you know, continuing service is like just, I mean, what, what, no, there's nothing more honorable truly than that. And so, you know, for what you're doing and your dedication, thank you, brother. 